Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. There's a null-spaced hole to my left... There's a null hole indeed. They call me Ben. We are joined as always with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant, who has recently been rethinking his moniker and maybe going with Paul Hollywood in a British accent. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. This is a this is a strange episode for us and uh, and an interesting story. There's a there, there are a couple of different conspiratorial myths we run into here and we also run into the evolution of media and the great game of telephone that we've mentioned in previous uh previous episodes but before we begin matt i have a i have to i have to ask you yes do you think this summer will be the summer that our hometown burns down that atlanta burns again uh, just from the heat this time, not from oh, yeah. uh, interesting warfare. My goodness. I I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. We went out, my family and I went out to the Candler Park Festival uh, on, gosh, was that Saturday? Yes, it was Saturday. And just standing outside uncovered was a, a terrible thing. I would not recommend it to anyone. Find a tree, get underneath it, and you'll be okay. <laughs> the music is still going to sound great. There we go. That's the spirit. It's it's a it's a positive, uh, positive spin on a terrible, terrible thing. I I just landed back in town uh, late yesterday night or early this morning. I'm not sure which. And the thing that hit me immediately was the heat. I'm just everyone who lives here. Uh, 
enjoys summer and, and autumn and all the hits, all the all the slow jazz of the seasons uh, until summer comes. This is terrible. This is horrific. I have no idea how hot or cold it is, uh, you know, in your neck of the global woods, folks. But please send us what, – what do they say on Facebook? Thoughts and prayers or better yet, ice cubes or those um, – and did you ever have those those weird little uh, popsicles that came in the plastic tubes when you were a kid? Yes. Or some of those. I'm 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 burning up so much. You know, the sun is my ancient nemesis anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm considering ice pops oh, as a, as a treatment. It really is hot town summer in, in the city. city. Back of my, my neck, neck feeling burning. <laughs> cool cat looking for a kitty. Gonna search in every corner of the city. All around the people looking half dead, walking on a sidewalk harder than a match here. Oh, going to get sued by that town, by that town, and that artist too. Ah, I doubt it. I doubt it. But that is that is a stone-cold jam for a hellishly hot day. Uh, so assuming that, assuming that the studio doesn't melt into one interminable mass of plastic VOCs, that's volatile organic compounds, chemicals, a.k.a. the basis of new car smell Mm -hmm. and why it will slowly kill you, uh, along with organic matter and mortar, uh, we will successfully finish this episode. This is a story that encounters, as we said, so many different conspiratorial threads. And while you're listening, uh, we would like to invite you to participate with us in pseudo- Real time. I mean, time itself is sort of a pseudo thing anyway, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, so if the mood strikes you, if the spirit so moves you as you are joining us today, uh, don't hesitate. Don't feel like you have to wait till the end to write us an email. You can go ahead and just give us a call. We are one eight three three S T D W Y T K. And if you're like one of our listeners that we casually mentioned at the end of the show, and I must say in a way that I, I knew that only uh, this listener would understand that I was talking to her, uh, you will then leave six more messages over the weekend, as she just did. <laughs> uh, so please feel, feel free to reach out with any kind of questions, any kind of statements, especially if you come up with something as we're talking about this episode. Yes, please. So let us begin. To paraphrase Henri de Balzac, behind every great fortune, there is a great crime. It's a thought that we've we've encountered uh, multiple times and that you have probably encountered in your own life in any variety of fronts. The concept here is that one cannot, regardless of time and space, one cannot reach, regardless of time and space, a certain threshold of financial success without somehow, purposefully or unwittingly, gaining some part of that fortune through criminal acts. And it's not – it isn't necessarily criminal acts of that person mm -hmm. by gaining that wealth because that wealth then many times is handed down, right? right. So perhaps it's a criminal act that your grandparents or your great-grandparents – or even further back committed. Mm. Right, right. So it's it's a known fact, for instance, that uh, there are people in the world who still enjoy uh, the benefits their ancestors reaped from things like the slave trade or colonialism. There's also another case to be made. If we want to make a case about people who are unwittingly perhaps profiting for this, we could look at uh, Silicon Valley and the technocrats who live there, uh, profiting off of uh, the backbreaking human rights abuses involved in the mining industry. Obtaining right? the things they need to make their chips. Right, right, right. One way or the other. And this quickly descends into a very sticky philosophical conversation. Are you or I, if we own a smartphone, are we also benefiting from this? The answer is more or less yes, but in this case, we're talking about the people who become millionaires, multimillionaires, billionaires uh, in the pursuit of these uh, of these ambitions, right? Yes. In today's episode, we are traveling back in time, fellow conspiracy realists. We are exploring the story of one of America's earliest tycoons, literally the first multimillionaire in the United States, or perhaps officially is a better word than literally. And we'll – Along the way, dive into the speculation about just how 
this one individual arrived at his fortune and why this speculation continues today. And as we'll find out in this episode, as many others, these stories have an official version and a not-so-official version. (laughs) Yes, just so. Here are the facts. Born Johann Jacob Astor, In Germany, on July 17, 1763, John Jacob Astor was the son of a butcher who would go on to found a financial dynasty that continues in some ways into the modern day. That's right. When he was, you know, a young man, around 17 years old, he went to London and he started to work with one of his brothers, his older brother, George. And uh, this, this guy, George, made musical instruments. And, you know, it's interesting enough, but he wanted to try something else. So in 1784, he left London. He got out of town. He brought some some of these instruments with him Mm -hmm. and just a little bit of pocket money, around $25. And he traveled all the way across the ocean to the United States to try and find something, fortune. Yeah, right, right, to seek his fortune. It's it's an American dream story, right? Let's let's explore the official story about how this German immigrant came to become America's first multi-millionaire. So as you said, Matt, 1784, he arrives. He's got some flutes. He's got around $25 cash money, as they would say. Uh, he arrives in Baltimore and he eventually makes his way up to New York City. While he is in New York, he opens his own fur trade shop in 1786, so about two years after he leaves Germany. Uh, He often at this time travels out into the wilderness just like his fur trappers do uh, and he wants to find – new sources of fur for his shop. This is a huge industry at this time and uh, this was before concerns about preserving species were very widespread. It was a foreign concept or an alien concept to many of these trappers and traders that there would ever be a day where it was difficult to obtain as many beaver pelts as one would wish. Yeah, because the populations all start to dwindle because the fur trade ends up being a really big thing. Mm. Well, and just one quick thing here with uh, Johan, a.k.a. John Astor here. He, when he went to New York, he met up with another brother, right? Mm -hmm. And he was working, I think, at a butcher shop for a while with his brother. And then he ended up trying his hand at uh, baking, cooking, and these kind of things. And he was totally like... I'm never going to make enough money just working with my hands at this level doing this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the main reasons he went out to seek out the fur trade. Exactly, because he could have easily spent the bulk of his life laboring as a successful artisan, right? Yeah. Uh, and instead he wanted something more. So he traveled to what even today is known as the land of excess and the the fur trade was appealing. It helped him get a start again, according to the official story. But he saved his he saved his pennies. He saved his scratch. Didn't party too hard at whatever their equivalent of Dave and Buster's was back then. And so it came to pass that a few years later, Astor was able to make his first real estate investment. And as he was diversifying into real estate, he was continuing to grow his fur business. Eventually, Astor's fur trading interest becomes the country's leading fur company. By by the turn of the century, he also takes his reach international. He starts exporting fur directly to China. In return, he is importing Chinese silk and tea, which are, you know, items of luxury, right, with a with a tremendously high profit margin, uh, even counting in all the dangers involved in international shipping at the time. And yeah, and you can see how that that also becomes very lucrative, just the the fact that he can ship uh, goods back and forth into different places and then even to China and to different places in China. I mean, this is a huge deal. This is how you really, really make some money. Yes, exactly. Right. You go big. You go international. So all of Astor's fur businesses has different, um, you know, different interests. We talk about this. This occurs in business today. 
you may see five different products on the same shelf in the same section of a grocery store and they're ultimately all owned by the same place. Fingers on a hand, right? So he goes public with this. He merges all of his fur businesses into something he calls in a burst of creativity the American Fur Company in 1808. And we shouldn't be too hard on the guy. I'm sure he had a lot going on. He just needed something simple and to the point for the name. Well, and I think if you can call something the American anything, like if that name hasn't oh, been yeah, trademarked already, yeah. I mean, go ahead and trademark it. That's great because that's that's similar to, you know what, I bet you've stumbled onto an ad, uh, an ad cycle, like an ad copy cycle. Uh, maybe we've mentioned this before, but if you're listening now, depending on how old or young you are, you can probably look back in your life and notice that marketing companies and ad companies go through this sort of um, – industry-wide trend towards certain phrases, right? I think there, there are times when everything is organic or in the 90s, everything was digital. It didn't even matter if it was an actual digital product, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so maybe American was, uh, was one of the first iterations of that. I think that's – I think you're probably right. But regardless of our theories on uh, the creativity or lack thereof in the ad community – it turns out that this this was a very good move on his part and the U.S., we have to remember, this is just the dawn of the 19th century. The U.S. is still um, still in its infancy in terms of what will later become the 50-state behemoth we know today. Lewis and Clark had just ended their expedition to the west coast of the continent. That was in, what, 1806. And after this, Astor, when he learned about this expedition, he bought up some land in Oregon uh, where a fort was built in 1811 and he had planned to build a settlement called Astoria. Not the most humble name, but, you know, he was by far not the only person doing this. Everybody was, everybody was naming crap after themselves. Yeah, and why not? I mean, that's pretty great. Uh, 1811, building a thing called Astoria, which sound I mean, it actually doesn't sound that bad. Well, it's not like a story of Astorville or sure. Astortown. Or Fordlandia. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we also have to consider for being fair that the people who had lived there for thousands of years earlier probably had their own name for it. Yeah, that's true. Well, regardless, the reason uh, he did not end up going through with this was because of the War of 1812. He ended up selling the outpost because Great Britain and the United States had uh, what people today would call a messy breakup. Yeah, I believe it was with a Canadian company that purchased that from mm -hmm, him mm -hmm. or Canadian interests at least. Right. So he, he decided to get out while the getting was good. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because if he had if he had owned that land and the US ended up losing control over it or sovereignty over it, would his deed of ownership still be honored? Yeah. Well and and indeed they did take over for like forty years. Mm-hmm. And so he he appeared to have made uh, uh, the right decision. After the War of 1812, he made even more scratch, even more cheddar, even more pony bones, whatever you want to call it, uh, because he had a bond deal with the U.S. government. At the same time, his wealth is compounded by the fact that all the real estate in New York City he owns begins to skyrocket in value. And then he ends up getting out of the fur business around uh, 1830s. And then he's really, you know, he's, I guess he's realizing that the true money now is in the accrued wealth of those, those uh, properties that he owns. So he's spending a lot of time doing his real estate management, all the estates, the investments. Um, he's, you know, at this point he owns hotels. He mm -hmm. owns places where other people live, residences, mm -hmm. where people are paying rent essentially. And that's where his time is spent and his money really is made. 
that's where he sees his most significant return. It's not, it's not to say that being a landlord is easy by any means, as I'm sure the landlords listening here can attest, uh, but it is to say it's less work than uh, sending people out into the wild to try to capture dwindling populations of wild animals in the hopes that a fur retains its value. And then sending a lot of the same people or new other people you're hiring to then ship it across the world. Right, and just hope nothing goes wrong. So that's why he goes into real estate. And again, this is the official story. By the time Astor dies in 1848, he is the most wealthy man in the country. He has an estimated fortune of around $20 million. And just let's give a little bit of perspective here. Uh, Paul, we're going to have an inflation calculator. Could you throw us a sound cue somewhere in the middle of this? So $20 million in 1848 is roughly equivalent to $646,956,962.03 in 2019. Yes. So almost like more than half a billion dollars. Yes. Most of his wealth – the vast majority goes to one guy, one of his uh, seven children, William Backhouse Astor. Yes, you heard that correctly. His middle name is the words back and house together, William Backhouse Astor. It just feels like something his friends called him. <laughs> or like he was a wrestler, I don't know, something. It, it does sound like, like weird. It's monikers. one of those, yeah, in-joke nicknames. I, I'm sure it's it, it's it has a logic and a reason to it, but it, it sounds like, you know— you know how you meet different friend groups and one of the members of the friend group just has has a weird name that no one explains to you? And they yeah. Just have it, like, like really your name's Red Paladin? Okay, <laughs> sure. That's pretty. Oh, okay. <laughs> Is that a – Whatever you say, Archie. <laughs> Are your friends at Dragon Con? Is that what's going on? No, my wife's making me watch Riverdale and it's killing me. It's okay. Riverdale, isn't it a, mur- <laughs> a murder mystery now or something? It is. I can like I survive because it is a murder mystery. But oh my god, is uh, Jughead the killer? He always struck me as the most sinister. No, dude, Jughead and FP are holding it down. <laughs> oh my god, who's FP? <laughs> That's his dad. Oh boy. Uh, should I should I just uh, read the reviews on Vox or something or? No, just know that FP is Skeet Ulrich and he makes the, the show worth it for me as well as uh, the late, unfortunately, Luke Perry, who is also awesome. There are a lot of great there, – There's the cast is wonderful. The show itself is like slightly infuriating. OK. Slightly infuriating. That's the review? <laughs> no, That's... not in a bad way. It's just uh, you can tell it's written for uh, maybe a slightly younger audience than me. Uh, they do they do reference movies that like mm. came out the year that they were in production, which is – or you know, a couple years prior to being mm. in production, which mm. is so interesting to have a separate universe, but Baby Driver is still a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, anyway. so is this on – real quick, is this on CW? I don't even know. It it's on like a a, one of the streaming shows. services. Okay. And I just want to play a little gargoyle, Griffins and Gargoyles now. So when you're ready, let's let's throw down some dice and get the chalices. Oh, <laughs> God, I don't know why I'm saying this. <laughs> okay. Well, that's your official story. And uh, it coincides with the official story of John Jacob Astor. <laughs> yeah. It's very difficult, I, I imagine, for both of us not to say John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt every time. <laughs> But anyway, Johnny J. Astor, at at this point, posthumously, he looks to be uh, a quintessential example of the American dream. He has all the essential ingredients. He's a hardworking immigrant. He has risen to the top echelons of society, not through undeserved inheritance, not because of who his parents were, but because he he combined hard work with sharp wits good old gumption, and no small dose of good luck. However, for decades and decades, various researchers have proposed another, we could say conspiratorial narrative, a less inspiring, stranger explanation for the source of Astor's enormous wealth. What if, instead of earning it, slowly over time, he stole it? All in one go. And we'll learn about that right after a quick word from our sponsor. 
Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. Here's where it gets crazy. There's an alternate story about John Jacob Astor's wealth. Let's say that the story of his arrival to the North American continent is true up to his early career as a fur trader. Okay. What if the narrative takes a sharp turn shortly afterward? What if instead of continually evolving his business, Astor has a tremendous amount of help from an unexpected discovery? Could his fortune be based not on business acumen, but on the secret discovery of buried treasure? Now, before we get into this, this is why it's so interesting to me. Because one of the major things you need in order to make money is to have some money, right? This mm-hmm. is something we've established mm-hmm. uh, throughout uh, all, of, all of time memoriam. Um, the connection here is that he just needed a certain injection of funds early on to be able to make some of the investments he made and to grow that into a fortune. Mm-hmm. That's what everything else we're talking about. That's what makes it so fascinating to me. So there's this other person, this other person named William Kidd, and he had this thing called pirate treasure. (laughs) Okay, all right. Let's get into his life. So um, 
This dude was born William Kidd. Uh, He was born in 1645. He originally had a career focusing on uh, privateering, but eventually he was hired by European royals to attack foreign ships that would encroach on land and uh, would be enemies essentially. Sure. Yeah. Or competitors because Mm -hmm. we have to to consider at this point that trade and statecraft were – very closely, very closely intertwined. And then m- much of it is happening on the open seas. And that's where the pirates come in. Yes. So as so he was a pirate hunter and he took the helm of a ship called the Adventure Galley in 1695. English investors had hired him to be a privateer to hunt down the foreign vessels that were endangering their uh, or his, you know, his employer's international trade deals. Now, hold on, Matt. Mm-hmm. Hold on, Ben, you might be saying as you listen along here. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Captain William Kidd is one of the world's most notorious pirates from this era, and you're telling me that he started out hunting pirates? He became one of the same monsters he meant to eradicate? Yes, that is exactly what we're saying. It's like he got bitten by a pirate and he became a pirate. Which is how it works. (laughs) That's how it works, exactly. Uh, So the problem with his pirate hunting days was that they couldn't – he and his crew – didn't really find the ships they were supposed to attack. They were supposed to attack some French ships and they found very few of them. And then in January of 1698, he caught sight of something called the Quegda Merchant, which was rounding the tip of India. This was an Armenian ship, weighed 500 tons. It carried gold, silk, spices, all the hits. Uh, They were owned in part by a minister at the Indian Grand Mughal's court. Uh, This minister had powerful, powerful connections and when he learned that his vessel had been attacked, he complained to the East India Company. Mm, (laughs) That's another old hit. Yep. And uh, now the East India Company and the the Grand Mogul are saying this guy is not legit. He's not a pirate hunter. He's hurting the wrong ships. He is not a pirate hunter. He is a pirate. And so begins his life on the wrong side of the law. Turns out being on the wrong side of the law did not suit Kidd over the long term. And he eventually was arrested in Boston. Then he was shipped back to England for his trial. And his court date was May 8th, 1701. And he was found guilty. And unfortunately for him... Uh, he was hanged on May 23rd of that same year, 1701. And um, again, like one of the one of the big things here, there are some abhorrent things done to humans and their bodies, um, you know, within in the past to basically serve as warnings for other people to not do something. And uh, Captain William Kidd, he was one of these people because his body, after it was dead and hung, was then put in a cage and hung up and it was left to rot there for everyone to see, everybody who went down the Thames River, uh, the one that goes through London. So, you know, don't be a pirate. Look at that guy. He was a pirate. Mm -hmm. See what happens when you mess with uh, the the world's most successful corporation, right? Yeah. So – Here's the thing. He's dead. No one knows uh, how much treasure he did or did not have and no one knows where he did or did not put it. We did know that there was about 10,000 pounds worth of treasure that was sent to pay for part of the the trial and a couple couple other things, right? And yes. There's something like that where it was not a lot of money. I mean, 10,000 pounds at the time is a lot of money, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't like the full pirate bounty that you would think of. Right. We do know that he did possess treasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did deposit some of it on Gardeners Island, hoping to use his knowledge of the treasure as a bargaining chip. Uh, he also... He also probably put some in other places. Yeah. The thing is, no one knows exactly where that would be. 
no one to date has found this huge treasure trove. Before he was hanged in 1701, he allegedly buried some of his loot in the Caribbean. This, is, this was the popular theory at the time. And despite the generations of treasure hunters who have attempted to verify his claims more or less in the, over the past th- three centuries, uh, nothing has been recovered that would equal the rumors because the rumors are kind of like, um, uh, like Smaug's hoard of gold level treasure trove. You know what I mean? Not just a box with some emeralds. This brings us back around. So we've the, the life and times of William Kitt. He did get treasure. We don't know how much. He put it in a few places. And then he died. And then he died. And we don't know where those places are. So the Astor connection. Could John Jacob Astor have somehow located a piece of kid's treasure? We will tell you the actual answer after a word from our sponsors. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. And we're back. There's more to this story than one might think at first blush. It all traces back to a fellow named Franklin Harvey Head. 
Yes, this uh, gentleman, Mr. Head, uh, he was a lawyer. He was born in New York and he worked uh, in all over, like really all over the place, uh, Wisconsin, California, Utah, and he ended up in Chicago. He was a bank director and president of this place called the Chicago Malleable Iron Company, another one of those awesome uh, company titles or names that is just, if it's not there, Mm -hmm. we'll take it. But in this case, they added Malleable just to let you know that iron was going to be shaped and changed, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Because again, it's so it's so funny. Sometimes we forget that shaping iron into things and then cooling it off was such a major advancement in human history. That uh, was a big deal. And we need – still, they needed a ton of iron to be produced. Absolutely. Um, so this guy, uh, Franklin Harvey Head. He um, He's the kind of guy that has some wealth and he also likes to show it off a little bit and also socialize with other people that have some wealth. Right. He's a social climber. Yes, exactly. And, you know, <laughs> one of the things that he likes to do was write and publish these humorous tales that he would use to try and impress his wealthy friends. Yeah, yeah. So – the kind of people that he wants to hang out with are not the novu riche. They're they're the I don't know what that is. New money. Got it. Uh, they're the kind of people that he wants to hang out with are the equivalent of American aristocrats. Their idea of success is to not be associated with earning money, and indeed to look down at times upon people who do. Uh, work for a living, even if they're working for a living, is just them owning a company. Uh, you know, let's not forget this is the country where someone once famously derided the Hilton family by saying, oh, the Hiltons, are they still letting rooms to people? And, uh, <laughs> oh, and, and for many of us listening, of course, that is that is a surreal and cartoonish concept that you would be condescending for – to someone for being good at something. Yeah. But uh, this was the case. These were the sorts of groups uh, with whom Head aspired to be associated. And you can see why he is a person between two worlds because he he still has to work for a living. The shame, yeah. right? The ignominy. And, and just the last – the thing that's most important in – in order to feel as though he's included with those groups the way Ben's talking about here, it, it's very important to note that the stories he was talking about would make reference to historical figures that those people would recognize and know, but they are made up. Or or uh, pander a bit to his friends. I would say more importantly, pander a bit to his friends by mentioning their ancestry or the the land that their families got back when, you know, Back when one of them had a job. So the most important thing that you just point out there, Matt, is that these stories, which were whimsical, satirical, uh, they were made up. They were made upsies and they were, <laughs> uh, to quote Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. the Quister, and they were meant to – uh, they were meant to ingratiate him within these circles. They were also not meant to be widely published outside because, you know, uh, the more people have access to a thing, the less interesting or valuable it becomes. In this, in again, in this mindset, uh, that's not how the world should work, but that's how their mindset was functioning. We have some examples uh, in a in a work of his, a work of heads called Shakespeare's Insomnia and the Causes Thereof, he claims that newly discovered correspondence between Shakespeare, Sir Walter Raleigh, an actor named William Kemp, and a moneylender with a tremendously offensive name, Mordecai Shylock, all show that Shakespeare had difficulty with money and marriage and that this led to chronic insomnia and that his chronic insomnia uh, manifests itself in many of his works because various characters uh, talk about sleeping or not sleeping. Yeah, or they need to get some rest finally so that right. they can be okay. Yeah, fascinating and it's funny. In a way, I've not read the book, but just that concept alone is humorous to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I get where he's going with it. One of his books is the actual and only source only primary source for this story about Astor and William Kidd. And here's how it happens. 
So Harvey Head is having dinner with the daughter of a landscape architect named Frederick Law Olmsted. And the subject of some property in Maine comes up. And this is this is a place called Deer Island. Olmsted owns land there and he spent maybe like a summer there before he passed away. And based on this conversation, Head decides he's going to have a little fun. Aha, he thinks it's time for one of my classic moves, one of my in-joke books. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to absolutely kill it with this crowd. <laughs> what does he do, Matt? <laughs> with the Olmsteads. Uh, okay, well, and just another little footnote here about Frederick Law Olmsted, uh, the architect who moved there to Deer, uh, Maine's Deer Island. Um, it really was so soon before his death, he ended up being put in, a, I guess, a facility because he was on his way out almost immediately after moving there. Mm-hmm. Ended up being a, a little a tragic little story there about him. Um, you can read more about in other places. But <laughs> Head thought it would be hilarious if he came up with this backstory as to how one of Olmsted's, um, I guess, ancestors – helped John Astor, who was one, who's known, widely known, as one of the most wealthy people in the world. All these people know who a- the Astor family is and John Astor mm-hmm. came up with this idea of maybe here's this secret little – this tale about how your ancestor helped this guy become the wealthiest person in the world. Right. He writes a book called Studies in Early American History, a notable lawsuit. And in this, in this story – in this work, he, which you can read online, by the way, he describes how Olmsted's descendants sued the Astor family to recover William Kidd's pirate treasure. According to this account, one of, one of Astor's agents, or perhaps Astor himself, a fur trapper discovered a buried treasure chest from the pirate William Kidd on land that Olmsted's ancestors owned on Deer Isle in Maine. This trapper stole the chest, but for some reason did not know its actual value. So he sold the chest to John Jacob Astor, and it became the entire basis for the Astor family fortune. In Head's account, generations later, the Olmsteads somehow discover this theft, and they decide to sue the Astor clan for compensation, including back rent on all his Manhattan real estate that, you know, because he had purchased it with this pirate treasure. Uh, and the the shtick there, you know, you see how it's almost like an Onion article. It just continues to escalate. But the book itself is full of these nods and these winks and these tongues and these cheeks. It's full of tip-offs that it is not a work of fact, including references to ancestors that don't exist, like Cotton Mather Olmsted or Oliver Cromwell Olmsted, uh, neither of whom are real. Yeah, he's just throwing Olmsted on the bottom of other uh, important Mm. figures. Right, exactly. William Shakespeare Olmsted, etc. (laughs) So maybe the the biggest indicator that this story is completely fictional was that there is no lawsuit. The book mentions a lawsuit and bases itself on this lawsuit, but the lawsuit does not exist. Yeah. It is not a thing. It's not real. At least it's not written about in any papers, in any ledgers, in anything that has been kept over all the years. In any legal documents, legal proceedings. It's not cited as precedent for anything. It doesn't exist. Well, and in the account of Head, it's a very specific claim of asking for $5 million or the equivalent – yeah, $5 million roughly or just, you know, control over over all of John Astor's property in Manhattan, whichever one was easier, essentially, right. is what he was we'll saying. We'll work with you. Yeah. yeah, and it was like minus a couple cents for some other thing. I mean, it's very, very specific. So this is a little bit of conspiracy busting here. This story was published in 1892. And again, it was originally known to be fiction. The Olmsteads knew it was fiction. The guy who wrote it, Head, knew it was fiction. He was just funning. Uh, but 
The problem is that people at that time in the late 1800s, early 1900s, were very, very similar to people in the 1950s or 2019, or we can go ahead and reasonably assume people in 2050. They were desperate for news of the world's wealthy and had a difficult time separating fact and fiction, differentiating between, you know, one news report on on Facebook and and, um, a piece of fake news on Facebook, right? Well, and let's talk about fact-checking. In the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah, how would you verify? Well, just how difficult it would be to have correspondence between some, like some law office somewhere else, let's say in Maine, even if you're in New York or something, Mm -hmm. just making that happen and trying to get um, any kind of correspondence back and forth in a timely manner to write or report on something. Mm -hmm. If let's say in New York City or Chicago, you came upon a copy of this this work and you were unsure of its, you know, um, its veracity or it's the truth behind any of this stuff, but it looks real and it's talking about people that you, you know, the names all sound familiar. It looks all familiar and who knows? Hey, uh, that reminds me, I, I can't remember if I told you because we, this, this is the first time this week we're hanging out. Uh, I went to Maine this weekend. Oh. Did I mention that? Was that the jumping off point to the other place you went? No, no. It was actually – I had to go to Maine to make it back here. Oh, today. wow. Okay. Yeah, it was It was kind of sketchy. I was in Maine uh, in an undisclosed location on a ramp for two hours or so. Whoa. Yeah, because something went wrong with the plane. That's how I ended up in Maine. Uh, I don't know if it counts. I, I guess I can't say I went to Maine because I wasn't allowed outside of the plane. Yeah. But uh, I'm still going to count it. And one day I'll <laughs> one day <laughs> I'll walk in Maine as a free man. But uh, today, was, this weekend was not that weekend. Uh, so, yeah, if you're listening and you're in Maine, tell me what it's like outside <laughs> outside of a vehicle. I, w- I want to check it out. I hear now is a good time to visit Maine as well because it's not, you know, snowed in and Stephen Kingy. All right. Well, I'm, I'll definitely. I do you want to go to Maine sometime? Well, yeah. Let's go to Maine. Paul, do you want to go to Maine? Paul Hollywood. Oh okay. yeah, he's, he's def- giving us a nod. Definitely. That was an enthusiastic nod. Well, yes, you're you're absolutely right. It it's easier now to differentiate between fact and fiction. Uh, But then it took a lot of legwork, right? The problems start to compound when a magazine called Liberty publishes an account of this story as though it is fact. And this is, for comparison, this is the very similar to the internet rumors about celebrities that will will still make the rounds today. Like, what's that that one... uh, um, Richard Gere and the gerbil. You remember that that old chestnut? I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, good, because we still want this to be a family show. Yes. Uh, Google it, but not on your work computer. Uh, this, this was presented as though it were factual when it was literally the equivalent of a, a mad magazine for insiders or an Onion uh, newspaper. And then it gets – even worse, it gets codified into history in 1926 when a historian in California presents this story as though it is true and everyone essentially falls for it. It's published not just in papers in California did they say this historian figured this out, not just in papers in New York do they say this historian's figured it out, and not just in Maine do they say this. They say it around the world. And now – People continue to believe it and you'll hear it floated as some sort of historical conspiracy, right? That that not only is it true that at the heart of every great fortune lay a great crime, but that we know the great crime of John Jacob Astor, which is stealing from pirates and landscape architects. Well, there's even an – I think it's a History Channel show. I don't even know if it's in production right now called Unearthed. Uh Uh-huh. Where at one point they, you know, they craft this whole episode about how this guy finds out that there's a secret number, a correspondence in – within this book that was written by Head that basically translates or represents the coordinates – 
to this place on Deer Island where the treasure still remains. And they apparently they go throughout the entire episode just pretending like it's real until they end up, you know, discussing at the end and finding out, oh, this was all just an historical fiction account. Oh, yeah, America Unearthed. That's what it That's is. That's the name. Yeah. So a bit about that genre of show. Uh, Matt, you and I have had run-ins with creators of shows like this. Not not specifically America Unearthed. I don't want to dig them. I haven't watched the show, but I am aware of what you're talking about. Uh, what, what we have seen is that the companies creating these shows have a propensity to prize – you know what they see as a as a clickbaity headline, the the broadcast equivalent thereof, over facts and investigations. So we've been in situations where, and not not to brag about us or anything or this show, but we've been in situations where we have just walked away from offers to collaborate on these sorts of projects because we feel that they are, at the very least, wildly misleading. Yes. Am I, I am I being I would, diplomatic enough when I say are, that? You really are. I, I think it, I think at the heart of it, you would say that sensationalism is paramount because it will get eyeballs on the screen on the correct channel configuration that you're looking for. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess, but but that leaves but that leaves people in such a lurch, you know, uh, yeah. when when you see this kind of. Uh, wackadoo presentation of things and at the very end someone says you know it's like at the very end of a pharmaceutical commercial which is a crazy thing anyway yeah. or the very end of a car commercial where the fine print person comes in and they say you know the following account is based on a satirical fictional work published in the late 1800s by franklin head which has little or nothing to do with the facts of the matter <laughs> that's, that's so great, though. You know what I mean? That's and I get I get it that it's entertainment, but it should not be entertainment disguised as, a, yeah. you know, disguised as some sort of factual investigation. I and, always think about the Mermaids show. Yeah, have we mentioned that on air? We have, right? We did. I think we did a podcast episode on it, but we definitely did a video on it. Yeah. So uh, years and years back, Matt, you and I were asked to participate in something between um, – participate in something that was, again, wildly misleading and not a, not a small bit exploitative. Uh, someone had put out this documentary, you know, this mockumentary that was purporting to be a documentary about the discovery of mermaids. Mermaids had finally been discovered. They were real. Here they are. And we were asked to – I think we talked about this on our Facebook group earlier. Here's where it gets crazy uh, is our Facebook group. We were asked to dive into <laughs> – dive into this documentary and present our take on it as though it were true. Uh, we refused. This was also I think one of the only times – anyone had ever specifically asked us to do something. Yeah. Right. And it's also why Discovery sold the whole company because they were like, Ben, Matt, nope. Won't play ball. <laughs> <laughs> right. We were the mice that frightened the elephant. That's that's also a myth. Yeah, uh, elephants myth. don't care about Franklin Head wrote that in 18. <laughs> Franklin Head wrote that. Yeah. So so if anything, this is a cautionary tale. It is Virtually certain that more myths like this propagate, masquerading as fact in your day-to-day -day experiences uh, for your entire life. You know what I mean? Yeah. There, there are tons of things that the equivalent of uh, three kids in a trench coat pretending to be an adult, uh, <laughs> which I'm just – that's just a great image. That's why I'm putting that in there. So the good news is that armed with this information – more and more people are not wasting time trying to trying to find some kind of uh, William Kidd treasure in Maine. Instead, because even in that story, that's the weird thing about yeah. Deer Island. Even in that story, the treasure is taken. Yeah. Uh, but more and more people 
are searching for kids' treasure in other places that are based on their understanding of his actual voyages. And oddly enough, more and more people claim to find his treasure with each passing decade. There's a recent example, which makes a lot more sense, uh, from Madagascar in 2015. And the title of it, get this, you're going to love this. How many times are we going to find Captain Kidd's treasure? (laughs) Right. Uh, So the first line is from New Jersey to Vietnam. There's barely a swatch of the world left untouched by the swashbuckling pirate Captain Kidd's evasive legacy. In 2015, an explorer named Barry Clifford says he's discovered a sunken treasure at the bottom of the Indian Ocean off the coast of Madagascar. He found a 100-pound silver bar with strange markings on it. And he said this is a remnant of the pirate's wrecked ship because he did wreck a ship in Madagascar. So the thing is that there there are so many shipwrecks throughout these oceans of ours. Uh, finding something is one thing, but then proving its provenance is another, and it's more difficult perhaps than you might think. So kids' treasure may have been discovered. Uh, it, It leads us to a larger question though. Do you think that there is still buried treasure out there that remains undiscovered? Where could it be located? And all and, and I know this episode may have been a bit of a bummer because we did bust a conspiracy, kind of. Uh, but this leads us to, I would argue, a more important conspiracy for our day and age. Do you think that someone could pull off something like uh, Franklin Head did? Ooh, and like you, make up a story and then in the make, modern day make everyone think it's real. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Think about some of the viral videos that have occurred, where it's one of these um, small groups of video audio video professionals that are making fake things about a bear attack, or like an almost bear attack. Or I'm trying to think of some of the exact examples. Write in if you know some of these, or give us a call. Mm. But there's some where it's been ab- absolutely proven to be false. Oh, the one there was like Justin Bieber eating a burrito like from the middle or something like that. <laughs> what? Where it became a national news story in all of these places. But it was just these guys, somebody dressed up like Justin Bieber and ate mm-hmm. a burrito from the center mm-hmm. and it became a thing. I, I I think it's probably pretty easy now because of the the rapid rate that everyone wants to pick up a story. And you kind of have to in order to be relevant. You've got to get it in your feed somehow. Mm-hmm. So I think it's – I bet it's easier now. It's interesting. We should do an episode on deep fakes in general, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let us know what your examples are or if you were to perpetuate a myth of this nature, what would it be and why? There's one example that someone recently posted on Here's Where It Gets Crazy that I would like to read because it just sounds like a great time. Uh, You want to hear it? Yes, please. This comes from Wayward Son, who said, In the latest episode, you fellas posed the question, What mystery would you like to leave the world? Trolling, of course. I want to rob a house, he says. Stay with me. I want to steal someone's entire house. Now, this would take a lot of resources, but the mechanics are pretty straightforward. It would have to be a rural area where there are less neighbors and they are farther between. Wait for some poor unsuspecting family to go on a long vacation, then hire a house moving company. Of course, there would have to be plenty of fluid capital to assuage the house movers from spilling the beans. Then you simply jack the house up and off we go with everything inside. The family comes home to an empty space. Disbelief and hilarity ensue. And then we go down in historical anonymity as the unknown perpetrators of the greatest unsolved mystery of all time. Step aside, Gobekli Tepe. Wow. Um... I want to say I'm on board, but it's, you're still stealing a house, even even jokingly. There, I'm on board. <laughs> I'm on board if, through some ridiculous series of circumstances, they get their house back. Yes. So I think it's more of a troll move for the house to show to show up later. See, <laughs> yes. All their stuff. I think it's way funnier if it's moved only slightly. Maybe it's only a couple of feet over, like beyond a gate or something. Now it's behind a gate and it used to be on the other side of the gate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> David Cope says break into a house and move everything over two to three inches. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and then, you know, also I, I had this idea too. Uh, why not don't – why not 
replace the house. Don't just steal it. Ooh. Replace it with a nicer house. But all the stuff is still in? All the stuff is still in <laughs> the house, all the same stuff, and then have one empty room. Yeah, that doesn't exist in the in the old house, and in there leave leave the room absolutely blank except for a Manila envelope on the floor, and it has a, a VHS tape of the Berenstein Bears. Whoa! <laughs> right? But see, you're just describing um, the Netflix revival of Queer Eye. Really, you just put a whole new house there. <laughs> Is whole that what house, happens? Whole new everything. <laughs> I haven't watched it. All your face, facial care products mm. are replaced. I don't know how it works. My wife makes me watch a lot of TV. I see. I see. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're enjoying some of it. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> so uh, we want to hear. We want to hear your uh, your ideas for phenomenal pranks or trolling, and we want to hear whether you think there is legitimate buried treasure out there remaining to be found. And if you if you really think you have a lead and you want it to tell us about it but you don't want us to spill the beans, let us know. Uh, we'll make sure not to accidentally give anyone a head start. That's right. That's right. So again, find us on all the socials. You can give us a call. Our number again is one eight three three stdwytk Please, please refrain from fizzle rock usage. Uh, before giving us a call. It just really helps me out. Um, but mostly just say whatever you want and have fun with it. If you don't want to do any of that stuff, you want to stay away from the computers and all the socials, you can always write us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Attention, true crime enthusiasts. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com.